so much for tuning in to the Attack Early Show. My name's Sam Mose. I'm with my good friend, Matt Garber. Hello. And today, we are going to talk about gain staging. This process is super important and really will kind of determine whether or not you make a nice, pristine recording or a distorted hot mess. Or maybe you want that distorted hot mess. Kind of a cool sound right now. And gain staging impacts all that. And today we are going to discuss why it's important, how we do it, what we do it with, uh, you know, things of that nature and how it applies to your everyday life in audio. So Matt, are you ready to discuss? Oh, I'm ready. To discuss, to discuss gain stage. I'm ready. Excellent. Do we need to do any housekeeping? I think we do, but I did it last time, and oh, I yes. think I did it. And like I just, <laughs> man, I just drove that sucker into the ground. So Sam, Matt, why don't you put on like the sequin jacket, pick up the long Bob Barker microphone, go next to the wheel, and give her a spin. <laughs> That's my own Was sound it one dollar? $1. Today, Tell them what they won. friends, you have won the opportunity to like, subscribe, comment, and share with a dear friend the Attack and Release Show. Even if you have an enemy, share it with them. You have the opportunity to seize the day right now for the next 30 seconds. Share this episode. Like it. Make a comment so that we can keep making these episodes and reach more and more people so that everybody can make better audio, which in return will benefit you long term. Don't delay. Act now. Act now. Thank you. Can we just like leave in a pause <laughs> and be like, we're going to give you a few minutes to go do that. You have a few minutes. Like, there's like some like just hanging out music. Like do, 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 right. do, do, do. This is great. Do, 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 yes. do. There's like a poodle going across the stage. A do, poodle. Do, 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 do. Okay. Yeah. Okay. How much is this can of soup? <laughs> Ninety-seven cents. Yeah. Look at that. Okay. You have a few have you minutes. You have a few minutes to do this. We really don't have enough time <laughs> to wait a few minutes. <laughs> I'll add this we post. <laughs> okay. Cool. Because we started late. So. Like. Subscribe. Share. Like, subscribe, share. Like, subscribe, share. Like, subscribe. Share. And time's up. And time's up. Let's talk about gain stage. Matt. Let's talk about gain staging. I want to tee you up. Sweet. So how do you want to start this? Do you want to start with <laughs> plugins? Tee with... You up. Okay. You're just gonna tee me up. I'm gonna tee you up. So <clears throat> I would say that this definitely starts with uh the mix that you receive. And since this is a mastering podcast, we'll just say that this is when a mastering engineer receives a mix 
And I would say when I receive a mix, um, it, it can be anywhere from, I mean, minus 8 RMS to all the way. I've had it as quiet as like minus 42 RMS, Whoa. which I don't know how y'all do it, but... Sometimes they come in like super, super quiet. And I get it. Like I have a, I have a good friend. He does a lot of uh, like instrumental piano music. Totally get it. That stuff is recorded quiet, recorded on rib- ribbon mics and whatnot. And uh, the levels and like he mixes it and it's all going to like come up in the mastering stage. Totally get that. But it's like if you have like a rock song and it's like <laughs> minus 40, I don't know how y'all do that, but y'all do it. And they sound, they all sound really good. It's just like okay, we have we have a ways to go. Uh, <laughs> we were we 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 aren't really even close to the starting line. So I would say where I normally like to receive mixes is somewhere, um, and this is RMS. This isn't on like the the dB full scale meter. Um, I would say that I typically like to see them kind of low twenties to like high to mid teens. And that's like a super workable range, at least for me and how I like to to gain stage my gear. And let's see, if it's too if it's too hot coming in, if I'm like any bit above minus twelve, I'm gonna probably just go into the little gain feature mm-hmm. on the side of the track, and I'm just gonna pull it down by however much it needs to come down. And so you just kind of have to think of, okay, well, now I'm going to bring that back up. Or was it good where it was, and can we kind of get by by using less gear? And so you kind of have to also take the client into consideration because I have clients that it's like, hey, it's perfect, just needs to be louder, and literally that's all that needs to happen. Um, But it it all depends on how you make it louder. Um, So if you just turn it up, it's not always good because you're kind of might be crushing some stuff into a limiter. Mm-hmm. So you might need to get a little creative with that. And so, but if they hear you EQ and stuff and doing all this other stuff, you're going to kind of get a nasty gram. So a lot of this comes down to like the client you're using and then like how hot they're submitting stuff to you. Um, so that's kind of that. If it's like at minus 40, it's like I might like, I have to dial it up with like a bunch of level and just kind of see where I can can get it. Normally if it's that low, Probably your biggest um, enemy at that point as a mastering engineer is going to be how transient some of that stuff is because like I probably not too much is hitting a compressor, not too much is hitting a limiter. And so uh, do you ever get these like this quiet, Sam, or is this just me? I get some really quiet tracks, um, you know, sometimes. I think really for me... Well, I don't want to cut you off. No, I asked you a question. Yeah, I would say when I get tracks that are really quiet, the main thing I sometimes run into with the client is kind of gets into like the old school importance of gain stage, which is like beating out noise floor essentially. Especially, yeah. You have, uh, you know, you can have hiss from recording in a room. You could just have noise, like literal noise floor just can mean basically anything introduced to the signal um, while you're recording. So it could be air conditioner, it could be you sniffing, it could be moving around the room, it could just be, um, you know, noise from the components. You know, if you were cutting back in analog world, 
when I used to track with consoles or tapes, which tape I didn't do so much of, but I used consoles quite a bit, um, you know, we would have to basically gain stage appropriate to manage the signal level throughout, you know, basically it hits the microphone, then it hits the console, then it goes out to, say, a compressor, and then an EQ, and comes back into the console, or however we have it inserts put in. And at each stage, you can pick up noise from the oh, noise yeah. floor, and that adds up. And if you do not set your gain appropriately or gain stage correctly at the end of the chain, once we start adding compression, you know, in the mix stage, compression at the mastering stage, when we're doing that, we're making things more loud more often. We're bringing up the low, uh, low signal up higher and cutting off the high signal down lower. And so you can run into noise floor problems. So for these quieter tracks that I get, there will often be, you know, for me, the quieter tracks are usually like acoustic and vocal or they're kind of more sparse instrumentation where someone recorded live and maybe at the time in their headphones or when they're recording, they recorded at, you know, a quiet level. For me, when I'm recording something, I try to get above negative 12 peaking um, when I'm looking at a meter of setting gain stage. That's not an end-all, be-all rule, but that usually keeps you pretty safe to where your mm -hmm. signal is above anything in the room outside of a blasting air conditioner, in, you know, into the microphone. But, you know, to the client, they're working on the tracking, it sounds all right, they mix it, it sounds all right, but say we're f 10 dB in compression away or even just level to get us up to anywhere commercially um, competing you know, we may have just raised up then all that hiss or air noise or the sound of a room, you know, essentially 10 dB. And so now all of a sudden when they were like, oh, that, you know, the, the fan on, it's not that big of a deal. Now it's kind of like screaming and competing with their vocal because now their vocal peaks have been chopped off and the low level information that air conditioner has now been brought up so that everything is on average, more louder, more often, consistently. So that's really where, for me, you know, I run into trouble with people where the the song just becomes too noisy, and they're like, "Hey, it sounds like there's hissiness on the top end, or like there's a white noise." People will describe it as like a white noise sound, you know, at the beginning and the end of the track, or you know, when it goes back down to the verse, I can hear like a fuzzy white noise sound, and you know, usually I have to say that's in the source, like that's you turn your mix up or you know at home if you put a limiter on your mix and just kind of bring it up to level and take off a db or two you're going to hear that the same thing and usually they go yeah so at that stage we have to either you know isotope repair or they go back to the mix and repair or we just kind of let it fly if it really isn't that distracting we just kind of know um you know either they correct it or on some level, sometimes, you know, I'll just say, you know, it just sounds like you recorded it live. And that's kind of mm -hmm. cool. Like, it, it is authentic. It's character. There's a lot of recordings that people like that do have noise floor in them. Um, you know, and you just kind of, you don't think about it as much sometimes as a consumer. But when we record it or hear it back at the engineering stage or mix mastering stage, we're hypercritical of it. Um, and I don't want to say that in passing, like, it doesn't matter like the consumer doesn't care about it. But that's kind of my view of like, if I get a quiet track, you know, those are the things we run into. And that's why gain stage is important. Um, 
because if people don't gain stage from the start, from the very first time they hit record, it just kind of compounds, you know, till the mastering stage. The mastering stage, realistically, too, like with modern recordings, I mean, we've, you know, people are compressing like 20, 30, 40 dB, you know, by the time we are done with it from where it was originally recorded. You know, a microphone, in theory, kind of compresses a signal, and then it hits, you know, gear, which kind of, can compress it, obviously, and then you're in the box compressing, then your mix bus compressing, your group compressing, and then I'm compressing, and you know, compression is is multiplicative, multiple, multi, multiplicative. I think is the word I'm looking for. Not, uh, it's not addition, and so that's not taking into account what's happening into your converter as right. well. Well, yeah, that too. So there's just a lot of um, a lot of times for that noise floor and signal to impact it. And then if you go too far with your gain, you get clipping distortion, which I don't know if I want to hand it off to you, Matt, you want to talk about that, or I don't know what you want to talk about next with it. But clipping distortion can often happen from overloading with gain, either gear or plugins or your DAW or the source, which is sometimes awesome and sometimes awful. (laughs) So... Yeah. <clears throat> and the next point I wanted to go into, and I know this is like we're not even into the gear part of it, is uh, if you get something that's too loud, and I'm not telling people to not uh, like have a loud mix, but essentially if you have something at, let's just say you deliver it at minus 10 RMS, and then the mastering engineer, for whatever reason, needs to turn it down... Um, whether it's going to just be like racking the crap out of their rig, they might not even turn it down um, to essentially, you turn it down then to go into your rig. You don't always have to do that. But if it does get turned down, say 5 dB, well, the noise floor isn't really getting quieter. It's still where it was, just the whole mix is quieter. And then everything is then coming back up. And so it's it's not necessarily like, like you're going to come back up and so everything's going to be 5 dB louder but it's like going to be 5 dB louder on top of where that noise floor was already hanging out and so like you're kind of like compounding like a problem by kind of delivering something too hot if it does need to be turned down um and that's just to get back to where it was and then it's like if you're going to press it not press it if you're going to uh print it and like deliver it and it's going to deliver around like minus five. And so you're adding through that whole process, you take out five and then you add in 10. And so now that noise floor is essentially 15 decibels louder. Yeah. Because you had to take it down, but it didn't go anywhere. And then you have to come back up 15. That's pretty... Um, that's pretty no bueno for a noise floor as well. So this is all before we even get into the thing. So this is, uh, this is just kind of like where everything kind of like, okay, we got to track where we, where we starting out. So as far as like getting into plugins, uh, on the input side of things before they hit my rig, I don't really do too much. I might do like some slight EQ moves. If something's like, like, whoa, this is a lot of low end and this is not going to like, work well with uh, like the analog gear and stuff like that. And so it's like I might, because uh, it's like if you have too much low end, you're just going to keep eating up some, you're going to keep eating up your headroom 
like with your gear and like all your stuff's going to be flying everywhere and you're going to be like that's going to be cut off and whether you're Sam into your limiter or me just into the converter and so it's like you really like if you're going to do any compressing it's like is that low end going to affect any of this normal compressing so you want to like take all that down um as far as like headrooms concerned um Sam and I have spoken before um I mean we don't expect everyone to have listened to like every single episode that we reference but um I don't really care what something comes in at. It can come in like at like the the meter at zero zero. And like some people ask for like three to four dB of headroom, and that's fine. But once again, you can always turn it down. If it comes in at zero zero, there's gonna be a little bit of a a question in there because I'm gonna go back and I'm gonna ask, well, was a limiter used? Because if it's zero zero and like my meter is not turning yellow or red then that means that obviously a limiter was used or you, in fact, uh, like, have the force and you can just, like, lightsaber the shit out of those little transients <laughs> perfectly. And so um, I want your skills. <laughs> so I, I, I always have to ask the question, if something at zero, zero, what information are we losing so that this could be at zero, zero? Yeah. Um, so... Um, what you're actually wanting to provide a mastering engineer is uh, dynamic range, um, which I know Sam likes to uh, chat on, and uh, you have you have your reasons why you like it. I have my reasons why we like it, but all mastering engineers like it because it gives us a little bit of room to kind of play with, uh, so that like something isn't slammed. If something's coming in with like like minus four dB of dy- dynamic range, it's like well. <laughs> the only thing you can do as a mastering engineer is just change the title from like mix final to master right. and then send it back. There's not really a lot that you can do at that point. And so we're going to have to have a conversation about the mix. Um, do you want to talk anything about dynamic range or is that about it? Um, no, that's probably about it. I mean, I could Do talk- you want to talk about anything like on the plugin side before you hit your rig if you do anything? Yeah. I mean, with plugins, you know, it's kind of often. I think for people, and it was for me, I mean, I'm not going to speak for you, Matt, but for me, it was confusing when I was starting working in my DAW, which is Logic. Um, And with plugins, I didn't quite understand, and I'm not going to get into it in this episode. Maybe I will do an IGTV on it or something, but most DAWs are using like a floating point processing, and they can actually take signals above zero dB. you know, which is kind of a forgiving thing. And so with plugins or in the DAW or whatnot, you know, you can pretty much um, go above zero the whole time within the session. Now, I don't recommend it because when you export, you know, you're going to usually dither to 16-bit or 24. Now, some people do print a 32-bit float. But, you know, if you start exporting down to 44.116 or something and you've been, say, clipping or going above zero in your DAW the whole time or within plugins, then you can get some nasty digital distortion. So that's something I would, you know, I'd say like gain staging, you know, becomes important in the DAW, um, but it becomes even more so important to me because, you know, if I'm using a plugin that's an emulate, you know, an analog emulation, you know, and this gets into the kind of the analog gear, um, you know, different pieces of gear and different plugins sound better at certain levels. And so 
gain staging becomes really important because some plugins like, um, well, there's a lot of plugins that emulate consoles and tape now. If you are just pinning all of those plugins, they're probably going to sound kind of thin and distorted. Um, but each plugin and usually each piece of gear has a sweet spot. And for me, that's kind of um, the beauty of having a bunch of gear or a bunch of plugins. Essentially, you have a bunch of tools, but most people don't realize that the sound they're searching for is usually um, created by a, a less hot signal. And especially in, um, in digital world and DAWs and sample-based things, you know, every sample off splice is basically like pinned zero zero. It's like a mastered kick drum and a mastered snare and a mastered synth. So we run into a lot of things. You know, my mixers talk a lot about, you know, beating the roughs from the producers. And they're like, I just wish the producers understood gain stage, basically, of when you're dropping in all these samples and it's, you know, going 5 dB above zero zero in your DAW. And then it's also, you know, your mix bus is going above 3 dB or 4 dB above 0, 0, and you print that as your rough. Yes, there's some digital clipping, but there's also some digital compression that's happening that is really hard to, I'll say, beat or emulate as far as loudness, perceived loudness goes once it gets to a mix stage with proper gain stage. And there's a misunderstanding then that at mastering, we can usually still beat that hot rough. Um, from the producer or even the mix engineer with proper gain stage. Um, but to me, gain stage is the key to loudness. Um, that's I think there's a loudness like sweet spot. I think there is ways I stack my gear. I essentially gain stage within analog. So whenever I get a song, um, I'm just going to dive into a little bit of workflow, I think, Matt, for a bit. Yeah, do it. Pass. Um, you know, I usually, people will ask me, hey, where do you want the song to be peaking or whatever? And I basically say, just keep it below zero, zero, you know, because I'm going to turn it down about 20 dB to then rebuild it in the analog world because I like the way um, my analog gear sounds when it's actually not hit super hot. Um, I find when I hit analog gear really hot at the mastering stage, it kind of clips, it kind of craps out. It'll sometimes roll off... Um, like tape does or something, depending on the piece of gear, it's rolling off transients and making things maybe a bit more dense, but also maybe blurry, not as clear, not as sharp, not as quick, not as punchy sometimes, depending on what I'm using. Um, and so I'll knock it down to like 20 dB and then, you know, with the better maker, start to crank up some gain on the input and then I'll actually turn down the output of my better maker limiter to go back down into the massive passive usually or Pultex, and that's because I like the way those things sound, the EQ sounds, uh, with a less signal than like coming into it at like a zero, zero. Um, with the tubes, you know, a lot of people know tubes obviously distort if you overload them, just like guitar amps. You know, you crank your tubes, they start getting crunchy if the signal level's too high. So that's like why I use the output on the Better Maker. I turn it down, drop it Have back down. Have you ever clipped yeah, your massive passive? Uh, you know, it's hard to do. <laughs> like, I don't it's know like, if it... It's like 300 volts for those tubes, I believe. And it's like, yeah. I don't think... I don't think I have ever been able to clip it. Yeah, I don't think it ever has, you know, to my knowledge, even cranking it. Um, I do think the tubes sound slightly different depending on the level. 
But as Agreed. far as clipping, yeah, I don't think I've ever been able to make it clip, which is pretty awesome. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So I'll usually rebuild it, you know, and then I come in, and Matt and I have different strategies, but I don't clip my helo usually for volume. I've kind of created my dense brick between my limiters and then EQ and then limit compress, then EQ again, a couple stages or overstayers, kind of like a, a tape or a console compression. And then I'll just bring it up to level and with the fab filter to our final destination of, you know, negative 0.2. So it peaks right there. But that's kind of, you know, for me, you know, and if you're at home and you've never thought about if you're working in the box, you know, your plugins will drastically sound different, in my opinion. If you're in a good ear or a good ear, if you're in a decent room with good monitors and you've got some experience with audio or ear training, for me, it's pretty night and day of um, if I'm pushing plugins at different levels that emulate analog, I hear them change tonally, um, especially like the Waves NLS stuff, which is modeled off of like an SSL console or an EMI or the Neve. Um, and you use the gain knob on that, it basically goes from, you know, very clean and pristine to crunchy. Um, and then if you use it on the NLS bus, you know, it's like the console center area, um, you know, the closer you get to zero, zero, the more it kind of glues together. But if you push it too hard, then it starts getting crunchy, clipping, because you're overloading everything and it's emulating overload, which is kind of sometimes an iconic sound um, and a lot of kind of iconic mixers who used to work on SSLs or Neves, a lot of their sound came from pinning the needles, essentially, especially like Chris Lord Algae. CLA's big sound has usually come from just pinning his SSL console, you know, to zero, zero and above, and that's kind of his sound, but he does it in a tasteful way um, somehow, and a lot of people make a real mess of it. But um, that's kind of for workflow, you know, for me, gain staging is everything. I create kind of little uh, sweet spots within each piece of gear, and if I was to just send out the original signal that most people send me, the gear is not going to react. I don't have the headroom to add, say, a shelf of low end. You know, after I limit, I need room, I need dynamic range, you know, I need some space to do my work in order to enhance and kind of bring out to me what the mix is wanting to do to get us to the end goal that people say they want. Um, so, I, you know, I apply kind of the same method. If I'm in the box, I'm going to apply about the same idea of, you know, if I was to master all in the box, which I did for many years before I had gear, you know, I gain staged in the box similarly of I knock the file down and then rebuild it back up. Especially with digital, it's so easy because like Fab Filter, you get like 20 or 30 dB of gain. And, you know, each plugin mm -hmm. has an insane amount of gain. Um, option on it, and it's all clean gain. It doesn't introduce any noise as long as it's not emulating, you know, a piece of gear. So that's a bit of my tangent, you know, on that workflow. What do you think about that, Matt? <laughs> I think it's cool. I mean, a little bit of what I do. Yes. Um, <clears throat> it's like after I have everything all set up in the box, like coming from like the DAW to printing. Not printing, but like heading out. Um, the DAW on the like right right before I hit the gear 
is just there to prep whatever file there is for how I hit things next and or like how I want to like hit yeah. that gear. Um, I also have never heard the Manly Very Mew ever distort. And I think it, I don't know, it's kind of like a cool little protective measure. It's not probably intentional. It's just probably the way the compressor works that if you put in too hot of a signal, well, the way that a Very Mew works is it turns it down because it all it all works off of like that whole like like based off the input level. So if the input level's too hot, it's just going to turn it down. It'll probably distort a few and start getting a little weird and crunchy and start getting a little funky whenever you like have a crazy high uh gain reduction, but I've never done that, so I don't really know. Um so but it's like the manly pieces are absolutely fantastic. Um let's see. I don't really do any like crazy gain staging. Like I, the main thing is like I don't want to come into the box super hot that I already have like the needle on the on the very muse swinging. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a big thing. Um, the Maslick MEA two. There's no real way to like that I gain stage into it. It's like either I like it in or I don't like it in. Um, I recently racked the MLA2, and I like that a lot. And I have it on a channel to where I can swap that. That's channel four. And then channel five is the foot control systems and my master bus processor. And I can swap which position they're in in case, like, one thing makes something too harsh. I can kind of, let's say, like, swap the MLA2 in, which is an optical compressor. I don't even think Maslick's making it anymore. I can't really even find them. Um, but like he'll like kind of turn on and off his productions on various things like the MPL two like that was he had stopped making that and he was making the that dual mono deesser mm-hmm. um, which I was like oh, I just want a stereo one <laughs> I'm not I'm not that fancy um, so like the MLA two it's like it once again it all runs off of like there's a there's a set threshold and you're just kind of like dialing into that threshold with an input level. And then you're deciding, like, at what ratio beyond that set threshold you're going to be reducing that signal at. And then you have your attack and release settings and everything. And it all does it in, like, a really cool, vibey way. It adds, like, a little sparkle on top. But it's super transparent, and it's awesome. Um, I don't completely have it figured out um, about, like, the best way to gain stage it. So I am probably will save that for a gear episode. Um, the foot control system... Uh, that thing can take just like all the heat in the world. I've never like overloaded that thing, and it just it just always works really well. Um, preferably with a high pass filter on. Um, that's kind of like all these things. Like anytime you're like playing with like a dynamic element, high pass filters are pretty nice. The MLA two does not have uh, any dynamic filtering. Um, the Neve is pretty. Uh, that thing has to be, uh, kind of catered to mainly because it's so fun to use that you can go so overboard with it. And essentially when you go over like an output level of, um, 18 on it, you kind of start getting into like the beginning, like the end of the green lights, beginning of the yellow lights, you can get into a little bit of crunching. You can get into a little bit of like. I don't know, just some stuff that's like a little bit of soft clipping. And so if you go over that, you really got to be wanting it. I think the yellow lights um, kind of start like in the in the plus 20 range. 
Um, I don't know if it's plus 20. It's, I don't know if it's minus 20. There's no real plus or minus. Like even, even the reduction side only says two, four, when technically it should be minus two, minus four. So my assumption is that, I don't know, whatever. So <laughs> I'm just kind of looking at it right in front of me, and this is what I'm reading on it. So 18 is kind of where I take it. If I have anything that's like overly transient or it's going to just be like that little like of like digitaliness, I just kind of... Um, I'll take the limiter on it and I'll just kind of dial it up to like just like a certain level and just so I have like a little bit of a limiter light flicking on the reduction side of things. And that normally takes care of it um, if stuff's like hitting it a little too loud. Um, but I, I don't know. I don't, I don't really push it that hard, but I'm not really too easy on it either. Um, the Masalik uh, MPL2... I have never distorted it, um, but you definitely have to watch how you gain stage into it because if essentially on the DSing side of it, um, it's all variable on the um, on the limiter side of it. So the limiter threshold on the left side actually sets the overall threshold for the whole unit. So and then on the right side with the threshold. Um, it's a variable attack and release. And so as you dial that threshold uh, knob up more to the left or counterclockwise, you're going to get a quicker attack and release as opposed to if you're on more of the, um, uh, the right side of it, then you're going to get a little bit slower of, atta- of an attack and release. And so you can really vary how you want to hit this guy by like varying that threshold, which will kind of, um, if you're too darn hot, you're not really going to get the right level, the right kind of character out of the high frequency limiter that you would otherwise, if you were to be, uh, properly like managing that top end. Um, let's see. It's like one of the nice things about like my rig that I've kind of built is the manly mastering backbone is pretty nice because I can, I, I have, uh, what is it? It's, yeah, I can take out uh, minus up to minus 5.55 decibels on the input and I can add up to six decibels on the input. And then same with on the output. So like I can take out, minus 5.5 or I can add plus six. I don't do that that much anymore um, just because I've kind of learned over the years and through, you know, the various ridicule that I get from my co-host that I really shouldn't be slamming the hell out of my limiter. (laughs) Right. However, clipping a mastering limiter is a nice little mastering trick that you can do. You just have to be careful with how you do it. Um, so, and then heading over to the crane song, I try to not have this thing just like all green lights plus the two red clip lights. I try to not have that. Don't get me wrong. The red clip lights are going to be on. Get over it. It's going to be fine. This thing handles a tremendous amount of heat and you can go pretty dang loud into it. Um, the DSP has to be in and then you have to have like 0.5, like one of the little DSP modes like dialed in. And I pulled it up on a oscilloscope, and you can barely see the waveform moving. Um, 
not the waveform. Like if you have like a completely flat plane, um, you barely have any deviation with like 0.5 in. So it's it's negligible. And then, but the nice thing is, is that I can completely allow the clipping to bypass the crane song head and I can actually let the helo clip. And the helo, from what I've found, does... Because of how it clips and because of what it sounds like and because of its audible nature of clipping, um, you actually do have a, like a touch more punch. You have a little bit more pop to it. And um, it's pretty tasteful in how it soft clips. And so sometimes I'll let the peaks bypass the head quantum and I'll let the, the helo take it every now and then also with the helo that's nice is you can uh dial back the level of the ad so if something is coming in too darn hot or if it's leaving the computer too darn hot you can dial the input and output of the helo pretty easily you can also vary the headroom i don't do that a lot because it kind of screws up my meters and i really kind of like i'm not saying i master by my meters like the whole like oh use your ears and so it's like I do that, but I also give like a little visual glance because I meter a lot of other popular music um, that's currently out there. So I know, okay, these are the levels that um, popular music is at or pop music. And uh, so this is where we're going to kind of target shoot for. And this mix will tell me whether or not it's able to do that by how it was mixed and by the elements that are in it. So... That's kind of a nice thing to do as well. You can change headroom. Like I said, though, I normally don't. Um, it kind of screws up some of my visuals. But um, and then now we're back onto the printing side of things. Do you want to? So did you already talk about what you do? Like once you're all back in the box? Uh, yeah, I mean a little bit. I just basically use the fab filter and bring it up to level because <laughs> it's already. I do basically all my compression and whatnot. I want out of the box. So in yeah. the box, the gain stage is really... I usually come back in at like negative 12 or something, and then I just do like plus 12. Wherever it's peaking, it's usually around negative 12, then I just fab filter plus 12, and then it you know, is just tickling um, right there at zero to zero. Or negative 0.2 is what I do. So I don't really do a ton. Of, like I just gain stage at a really nice clean level with the helo. So I don't run into any of the issues you have, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, and call it a day. Usually. I have absolutely no issues. For I found myself a four thousand dollars solution to those issues. So I still use it for like. Here's the thing, though. As much as I bitch about it, I'm never going to get rid of it. Yeah, it's it's pretty uh, it's pretty wicked for what it is. So uh, when I come back in the box after I print and whatnot. Um, I normally will just kind of have like a few like corrective measures. I'll normally have like an instance of uh, like an an ozone inflator kind of hanging out. I don't know why. It's like if there's anything that the analog realm couldn't, um, let's say, enhance, typically the inflator will kind of get you like, I don't know, between 2 and 5%. But it's a very important 2 and 5%. Yeah. I watched a mini podcast with that was that uh, Ivana Manley was on, and she was talking about the UAD plugins. I sent it to you, Sam. Yes. Um, and she said that the plugins of the Very Mu and the Massive Passive will get you like eighty-eight percent of the way there for like a few hundred dollars. 
And then if you want to pay the extra, however much you can get the extra, like 12%. And it's like, well, I want the extra 12% because that's what we're fighting for. We're fighting for like the last 10% of a song. Yeah. So the inflator to me, that two to five is pretty solid. Um, I'll normally have like another EQ that's rarely used. It's either ozone or a fab filter just in case something was a little bit awry, never really gets used, but it's just kind of there. So it's just kind of in my instance. And then um, if something I couldn't tame any high end or just a crazy vocal or something, um, I might bring out Soothe, which is just, you know, like a cult favorite. And then, uh, but like those are pretty rare. Normally it's just, I'll have an inflator and I'll normally just have it on or just like tickling something. And you can clip that thing pretty darn good. And it also operates as a clipper on the input and output functions. Um, so it'll just be normally the inflator and then the fab filter, the Pro L2. And I'll normally do my processing between like 0.2 because I just like the tonal characters of it. I'll do it between 0.2 and like 0.8 is normally about as hard as I push it. Just because like, unlike Sam, who's kind of coming coming out a little bit quiet, he's making up for that with a fab filter, which is totally fine. And so his, in all honesty, we're probably taking off the exact same amount with the fab filter. Right. You're just increasing the level of the fab filter, probably the amount that I'm, um, use, I'm doing it in a box. Right. I'm sorry, I'm doing it in the in the gear. Right. So when I come out, I'm already at that level. Um, and so you're probably just taking off like a very minuscule amount to get to where you need to go. And I'm taking off, I don't know. It's like, well, for me, it's like rarely a dB that the fab filter does something with. And so if I need any more than a dB, that's where you get into some serious gain staging of like, okay, do I need to bring like another limiter in to handle like a little bit more of this heat? Yeah. And I've said this before in previous episodes that the reason that you might do that is say that you need to make up 2 dB and instead of bringing up that 2 dB and having the limiter smash that down, um, having two or three limiters, let's just say two for the math, uh, each limiter is taking like one dB, or you have four limiters taking half a dB. Not this never. I never use four limiters, but um, if you use four limiters that take half a dB, your recovery time is going to be at half a dB. It's literally going to be a quarter of the length that it would have to be at two dB. Mm-hmm. So you're going to be able to interact with that source material a lot better. Um, by having more than one limiter if you do need to make up more than kind of what you're sonically comfortable with otherwise. So, um, yeah, then you just set your output level and then you send it off to the client and you type out an email and you say, you are going to love this, holy shit. (laughs) And then, yeah, they're like, can I give you my money now? And in Sam's case, you should have already paid him. In my case, I will send you an invoice. So we should do an we should do a whole thing on money. A whole thing on money would be we could do a whole like a whole podcast a whole series on money. We should. So great. You have anything else about gain staging? No, I feel like I said what I needed. The important things that matter. I could ramble, but I feel good about oh, what great. I said. Well, good. So. <laughs> That's about all we got with gain staging. Woo. Nice little uh, forty-minute chunk. So, 
if uh, you hear some sweet music like queuing up from the the bottom (laughs) nethers of the podcast, that is curated by the one and only Sam Moses. I believe this is episode 91 or 90 or 92. Mm -hmm. And so he has made 90 however many of these for y'all's ear tinglage. And so if you can just tell him how much you like him or if you want to buy one of his beats, you can find them over at beesabeats.com. If you would be in need of a mastering engineer, Sam and I both offer mastering services. Sam can be found at mosesmastering.com or the same uh, handle on Instagram, just mosesmastering. I can be found at fortherecordmastering.com or the same handle at fortherecordmastering on Instagram. And uh, yeah, if you like the show, if you can once again give us some thumbs up, some stars, some... I don't know, comments, whatever whatever you are, wherever you are, if you could just do that, we would be eternally grateful. Yes. So, with that said, morning, afternoon, evening, whatever y'all are having, have a darn good one. Woo. Cue the music. Cue it. See y'all. Bye.